Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. On this episode, we have a conversation with historian Benjamin H. Johnson about his book, Escaping the Dark Gray City, Fear and Hope in Progressive Era Conservation. Thanks for listening. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. In recent years, debates about public lands and environmental policy have dominated American political discourse. From the creation and shrinking of national monuments, to oil and gas development, mining and lumbering on public lands, to concerns about recreation, tourism, and overcrowding in national parks, these and other related topics have become politically divisive. Lest we think this is a new problem, Benjamin Johnson's new book demonstrates that these are old debates and that they have been politically contested for well over a century. Johnson is a historian and a professor at Loyola University in Chicago. Yale University Press published his new book in 2017. Escaping the Dark Gray City, Fear and Hope in Progressive Era Conservation offers a narrative history of how the conservation movement began and how it fits into the broader turn-of-the-century progressive era. This history reveals the characters concerned about how Americans interacted with and managed various environments, ecosystems, wilderness, forests, grasslands, mountains, waterways, and coastlines, as well as the natural resources contained on those lands. Johnson's narrative revolves around two historical ideas. First, he stresses the complexity and diversity of thought and action among these conservation people. Second, he seeks to better integrate conservation into the broader tableau of progressive era reform movements. This was a time when many groups were using scientific knowledge to address economic, social, and cultural issues, studying and pushing for reforms in workplace and food safety, women's suffrage, child labor, education, as well as segregation and immigration. Johnson contextualizes conservation movements and presents them as a more central player in the era than others previously have. He leverages these two historical ideas to demonstrate how the early evolution of conservation is still relevant today. The environment matters. He opens his book by writing, The extraordinary intelligence of human beings can seduce us into thinking that we are the sole architects of our history. With the rest of the world, plants, animals, weather, geography, simply the props and stage on which we enact our dramas. The premise of environmental history is that the larger world is also an actor in human stories. He continues later. 
As we confront environmental challenges today, we can learn not only from the mistakes and blind spots of previous reformers, but also from the ways that they delegitimized markets, validated state action in the defense of the common good, and fostered a culture of appreciation for nature both distant and close at hand. I hope that listeners will find value in this discussion, whether they live in the woods or live in the city. There's a lot for all of us to learn. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Professor Ben Johnson. Uh, We're happy to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into your book, some may be wondering how a historian, primarily known as a historian of borderlands, is now publishing books on synthetic works on environmental history. So can you give us the little, uh, the history of how you arrived at this topic? I'm sure, you know, I think it it might look weird if you look at my other books, um, but actually I've had a longstanding interest in the environmental politics of the late 19th and early 20th century going back to graduate school. And so I think the answer is the new Western history, basically. Um, So I was interested in the history of uh, the North American West in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That's what drew me to graduate school. Um, I almost wrote a dissertation about kind of conflicts over the advent of the state management of natural resources in northeastern Minnesota, which I did a seminar paper on and became my first published article while I was in graduate school, um, but opted for uh, the study of uh, crushed uprising and the birth of Mexican-American civil rights politics along the Texas-Mexico border in the same time period. And I've also always taught environmental history, you know, at every job that I've had, every institution I've um, worked for. And so uh, in that sense, actually, you know, my environmental work has been a, uh, a constant thread. Well, it seems to be uh, a common theme, not just with the people we've talked with on the podcast, but others I know who their second or third book seem to come out of left field, but it's actually old topics that they've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And maybe topics they've even talked about pretty consistently with students um, that just, you know, didn't have a chance to show up in their publication record yet. Yeah. Well, the general game plan for kind of where I'd like to go is to first talk kind of broadly about a few topics uh, that you cover in your book about kind of the narrative of the conservation movement and how it evolves and so forth during the progressive era. And the book is not explicitly pitched as a Western book. And um, but I think anyone who who picks it up will, you know, immediately realize that although that may not be the explicit angle of your analysis, so much of the content takes place out in the West. It's kind of the main battleground for a lot of the things. So well, I want to talk about some things broadly and then maybe we'll pivot explicitly to to some Western ideas or maybe that'll come out naturally. We'll see okay, how this yeah, goes. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the conservation movement. Um, okay. For for those unaware, could you give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of of what the conservation movement was, when it began, and maybe what some of its early goals and actions were? Sure. So, you know, the word conservation itself does not come into wide circulation until um, the first decade of the 20th century, but the ideas had been around and particularly in American discourse since really the 1870s and 1880s. And I think the key idea of conservation is the sense that um, humanity, both in North America and elsewhere, uh, had reached the point of being so numerous and 
um, so technologically advanced, right? You can think about uh, heavy industrialization as the key forces with things like things like railroads, steel smelting, um, heavy manufacturing, and the consequent urbanization of the population of the most you know economically developed countries. So that humanity had become so powerful and so numerous that it risked uh, really fouling the non-human world in a way that you know, uh, would be problematic both for the continuation of um, advanced industrial society, uh, you know, and economic prosperity, but also for, you know, non-human nature as well. So you think about things like the near extinction experience of the American bison Mm -hmm. or the extinction of the once just absolutely massive population numbers of the passenger pigeon. So you start to get people on the American scene in the 1870s and 1880s you know, warning about these things and saying, you know, we need to actually be careful and deliberate and self-conscious in how we humans relate to the non-human world. You know, by the 1890s and gathering continuing momentum in the new century, you have actual legislative and kind of concrete bureaucratic and cultural efforts to do things about this. So mm-hmm. you get a federal government that instead of trying to give away its Western domain into individual, you know, farms and ranches as as fast as it could is now going to be managing huge tracts of land in perpetuity as national forests. In 1916, you get a national parks bill that creates a national, you know, the National Park Service is still around. You get all sorts of laws on the federal level about the hunting and, you know, commerce and endangered bird species and other bird species. And you have organizations like the Boy Scouts and the National Audubon Society that are working in part on legislative measures, but also just fostering a kind of awareness and what, you know, we might today call a kind of environmental ethic among their members. So you've got a kind of roaring conservation movement, I would say, by the early 20th century. So for those really early people, you say in the 1870s and 1880s, they're fighting somewhat against this long-standing myth of of superabundance. Mm-hmm. Right? That that North America, there were just so many bison or so many trees. The, 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 there's endless natural resources. So how are they making that early pitch to their fellow Americans that that, that we need to be more aware, more careful with natural resources? I think it's twofold, and I think it's both an argument that's about nature and it's an argument about society. And one of the things I'm trying to argue in this book is that this whole idea that we have from the last generation of environmental historians, particularly Western-oriented environmental historians, that early American environmental traditions from this period sort of failed to take into account issues of social justice. I'm kind of arguing that, that that's wrong, or at least you know, it might apply to some people, but it's overstated and it's not an accurate generalization about conservation as a whole. So I think you see people like George Perkins Marsh, who has long been recognized as a forerunner of conservation, um, who tragically is not a Westerner, but is nonetheless very influential, writing from the perspective of New England, talking about deforestation and talking about the ways that actually uh, the fertility of the land and its ability to uh, support agriculture in perpetuity is being dr- dramatically diminished by overcutting of forests and erosion, and that if we don't pay attention, we might end up like large portions of the Mediterranean world in which he had lived while serving as a, you know, as a U.S. ambassador. 
So that's a part of the argument, right? And you have natural scientists who start pointing to things like the bison and the passenger pigeon as a further example of that, or erosion in California gold fields. The other part of the argument that I think is equally important and that actually comes to the fore most quickly in the West is the argument that not only do you have the destructive use of natural resources, but you also have the monopolization of them and that this is tied to growing economic inequality. So one of the big surprises of writing this book to me was how hugely influential the author Henry George was on subsequent conservation. And so he's warning in the 1870s and 1880s, he writes this book called Poverty and Progress, um, which was in its time as well known as um, the right, at least in the English speaking world, was as well known as the writings of Karl Marx where he warns that the monopoly in land, especially in urban land, is kind of undercutting the and destroying the egalitarian promise of the United States. And he's not quite a full-blown conservationist. I don't know that you can call him that because he doesn't have so much this first key idea of the destruction of nature or the you know the scarcity of natural resources that will drive most later conservationists. But he does introduce these questions of monopoly and inequality, and he also introduces this question of the kind of alienation of urbanites, especially poor urbanites, from nature and laments that they have kind of no access to the wider world of creation. Um, Why is that a problem? According because to we need this. I mean, he thinks, you know, human beings, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, I guess you could say he thinks that human beings are a part of nature um, and that they're unhappy they're um they're alienated from nature in a kind of psychological and aesthetic sense as well as you know not having the access to you know to hunting to gathering um to land to have some measure of economic independence on and you know that really comes out of his experiences watching land monopolization in in California so there's an you know the early argument about conservation i think is both an argument about nature but it's also for most people an argument about society yeah, I think this one thread is the one we're most familiar with, kind of progressive era turn of century fears about urbanization and industrialization and that so many uh, Americans, especially new immigrant Americans, are living in poverty and urban settings, which are, you know, the cities are the centers of vice and corruption and that more and more Americans are living in that setting instead of, you know, the yeoman agricultural farmers mm -hmm. of you know, yesteryear, um, and and that kind of driving this turn towards nature and conservation. But I think most of us have heard much less about kind of the economic concept mm -hmm. that you're bringing in, which is also a part of, you know, so much of the progressive reforms and movements are these fears about monopolies right. and about economic inequality. And um, so can, can you, I mean, we, I wanted to eventually get to how, because part of what your book tries to do is more um, tightly, uh, to, to bring the conservation movement more firmly into our our, our narratives of the mm -hmm. progressive movement. I think you, you mentioned a few times that the conservation movement is generally discussed of as part of the progressive reform era, but kind of, you know, like the, the redheaded stepchild uh, that we don't give much attention to. And I have redheaded kids, so I can say yeah, that. Yeah, I wish I'd um, a book, actually. I'll have to <laughs> try to fit into the next. Maybe, maybe for the second edition. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so... so can you give us some context? Again, you know, some listeners may, I think most have heard about the progressive era, um, and progressive reform movements, but 
how does conservation fit into that broader context? And how are you trying to to say, no, this is a more central part or a bigger player than we've we've talked about before? Yeah, sure. No, that is one of the big goals of the book. I mean, you know, progressivism is a kind of uh, diverse, complicated, even chaotic movement, if you even want to call it a movement. Yeah, I was know, t- I always tell my students like there's they're not card holding members of the book, the progressive movement. It's kind of this large nebulous right, exactly. atmosphere, right? I mean, at some point in the 19 teens, you get a progressive party, but many people who would have considered themselves progressives were never in that party. But I think in general, I think of progressivism as um, a response to the problems created by the industrialization of the United States. So they're interested in um, monopoly and the dangers of monopoly. And so this is created by the extraordinary power of the new industrial corporations, you know, especially um, railroad companies and oil companies. They're interested in questions of um, food and drug safety and awareness, right? Um, In a time when now, um, most of the population is actually getting its food through, is buying its food, right? Uh, instead of growing it, yeah. Right, instead of providing it for themselves. Um, they're interested in different ways in the labor question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the status of uh, wage laborers for these new industrial corporations. Um, they're interested in how the United States is going to incorporate um, an extraordinarily diverse set of immigrants, right? Um, mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe at this point. And, you know, their answers to these questions are not all the same by any means. Um, but I think they have in common the shared sense that American political traditions and American culture uh, and American governance needs to be updated for the new realities of an industrial era. And in that sense, it's exactly the same sense of conservation, right? Um, That, uh, you know, the relationship between uh, human beings and our profoundly powerful industrial market economies um, has changed our relationship to uh, the wider non-human world. And so we need to pay uh, pay attention to it and make sure that we're not destroying it and harming it and ourselves through, you know, careless use or over-exploitation. I think there's similarly, some of the means that progressives and conservationists turn to are very similar. So, and again, it's a very diverse movement. So these character, these generalizations don't apply to everybody, but there's a sense of respect for scientific expertise, right? So the idea is you're going to have professional foresters who go to forestry schools and know how forests work, right? Or you're going to have professional range managers who know uh, the impact of cattle grazing, the impact of predators on cattle, and you're going to turn over authority to them and you're going to get a more rational and sustainable result than if you just leave things to the chaos of the market. And one of the things I think they all have in common particularly is a real wariness, skepticism, and even outright hostility for many of them to the forces of kind of unregulated so-called free markets. They view them as potentially destructive. I mean, almost all of them are committed to capitalism in the sense of, you know, the private ownership of the means of production and, you know, vigorous commercial exchange and economic growth. And then they are also very aware that these new economic forms of industrial life um, 
pose real challenges to political democracy when you have such disparities of wealth and political power. So in that way, I think, you know, progressivism, conservation really was a fundamental part of, of progressivism. I think it's interesting that, that the locations of where they're doing a lot of their work, you know, are out in these Western landscapes and mm-hmm. often very remote mm-hmm. Western landscapes. But the crises that much of this is trying to address is coming out of these highly urbanized mm-hmm. areas. And then I don't know if you have any thoughts on kind of this interplay between uh, the urban population for which some portions of the conservation movement are trying to address and help and the fact that uh, the locations that are uh, trying to regulate or conserve actually might be are, are, are far flung flung locales, you know, from downtown Chicago, you know. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the dynamics. That's definitely one of the dynamics. Right. So especially conservationists who are interested in uh, forest resources and national parks tend themselves to be urbanites and the center of gravity of the American population and particularly the sort of most educated, most elite, most politically influential people is still very much in the East Coast. And I guess with Chicago, a bit in the Midwest as well. So you do have this kind of dynamic that frustrates a lot of people in the West, you know, then as now. And today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Of, um, you know, kind of uh, outsiders to the West coming in and um, wanting to be in charge of the show. Uh, On the other hand, I also try to show that there's a lot of interest among conservation circles in what I call urban conservation, right, and actually creating urban park systems. And so I try to introduce this guy, Horace McFarland, as a kind of counterpart to um, the better known, at least in environmental and Western circles, figures of Gifford Pinchot and John Muir. And McFarland is someone, you know, he's from Pennsylvania. He's active there most of his life as well as on the national stage. But he's someone who's interested in reforming cities as well, but not to the exclusion of other things, right? So he is the chief architect of the passage of the National Park Service Act. But that's an important distinction or a thing to wrap our heads around with McFarland as far as how conservation might be impacting the lives of everyday Americans then and now. Mm -hmm. The more consistent impact might be through urban planning and green spaces and parks and um we often talk about conservation and preservation, yeah, as as national parks, and and this goes to the broader problem of how we sometimes fail to realize that there's an environmental history uh, to urban spaces as well, right. and it's actually exactly. the one that we interact with the most often. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's you know you go talk to people about what makes their city great or livable, and often what they turn to is oh, as great parks, great trails, great green spaces. It makes it feel not like a city sometimes. You know, that's often what makes places livable. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly right. And a lot of those measures come out of exactly those periods and exactly um, these figures. And so that was something that I, you know, as we started off the interview by establishing, I have a longstanding interest in conservation and the environmental politics of this era. But what's newer for me is the awareness of how fundamental reforming cities was to many of these figures. Again, not necessarily most of them. So one of the things, you know, that I learned on this is that, you know, John Muir, who uh, I tended to have a higher opinion of, frankly, before I really got into the writing of this book. I just don't think Uh he cared. I don't think he cared at all how people lived in cities, you know, the sort of ordinary people of Chicago, New York, or even San Francisco, right? Um, uh, but I'm at, at pains to point out that 
that was definitely not true of other conservationists. So this sort of um, blanket assertion that, you know, oh, this is just like city slickers trying to boss around the countryside and they don't even pay attention to their own places. That's just not true for many of them. Uh, well, I wanted to get to this idea of your book does a lot of work to try to complicate our understanding of the conservation movement itself or show mm-hmm. how it's a more diverse mm-hmm. group of people and ideas than we sometimes refer to. Often we talk of this binary, there, there's conservationists led by Gifford Pinchot, right, who want to use natural resources but in a careful, managed way. And then there's preservationists led by John Muir who want to just set places aside and leave them mm-hmm. wild and untamed and never the, the, you know, the two never meet and it's two divided camps. And I mean, Don Worcester's recent biography of John Muir complicates this quite a bit. Uh, but your work does as well as showing this is, there's lots of overlap. There's lots of competition between these groups, lots of collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. Can you kind of give us, uh, again, kind of the, a thumbnail sketch of, of the diversity of and, and overlapping and competing opinions between conservationists, preservationists, the, the, ur- this, the urban um, angle that you've already kind of introduced? Who, who are the players here that we need to think more critically about? Sure. Yeah, I, it's actually gotten to the point where I don't think the preservation-conservation dichotomy is useful at all. And so I we need act- we need to strike that from all of our lectures. I think so. I don't I've, I don't use it in my environmental history classes anymore. I mean, I think there's a couple of axes or spectrums to try to pay attention to here. Um, so I think one is the kind of material or aesthetic or romantic axis, right? And that is people who care about nature and are interested in so-called natural places for more material reasons, i.e. like you look at a forest and you see timber, you see future houses, you see future ships, you see future railroad cars, you see future, you know, railroad ties, et cetera. Or you look at a forest and you see, you know, like famously John Muir, you know, you see cathedrals to the glory of God and the glory of, of the universe. So that's one sort of spectrum, right? Although even there, that's really complicated, right? So we think of Gifford Pinchot as being the heartless materialist, and he is pretty materialist in his focus on policy and his public writings, but he is a great outdoorsman. Um, he loves Do you want to tell us, can you tell us really quick, um, maybe we need to establish who these sure. characters are. So who okay, is, yeah. uh, John, John Muir yeah. and, and who is Gifford Pinchot? Sorry, then we'll, we'll we can get back on your train of thought there. Right. So John Muir is um, uh, perhaps most famous as the founder of the Sierra Club in 1892. And he is, you know, what might be called the leading American nature writer of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He's an amazing explorer, traveler, and he writes, you know, these beautiful odes to the wild places of North America and indeed beyond. And he's been a, you know, um, a leading saint of the environmental pantheon since he was alive and for the, you know, uh, century and a few years that he's, uh, you know, after his death. Um, Gifford Pinchot is a little bit younger than Muir and he is, um, you know, was born to a wealthy East Coast family that ironically, but not coincidentally, had made most of its money in the lumbering business and becomes the chief advocate and proponent of scientific forestry in the United States with his family's money. He helps found the Yale School of Forestry, which is, you know, becomes a very influential site for the training of the first um, generation of professional foresters. 
And Penchot, working closely with his um, BFF, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, of course, becomes president, um, worked to create the public domain, right, to permanently have the federal government permanently in charge of managing millions of acres um, for Penchot, most importantly, under the rubric of the National Forest System, of which he becomes the first chief in the early 20th century, um, but then also later under the National Park System and what becomes the Bureau of Land Management. Um, so they're often taken as kind of embodiments of, as you said earlier, the sort of preservationist or what I call the kind of aesthetic or romantic side of conservation in the case of Muir and the conservationist or what I prefer to think of as the kind of material end of conservation in the case of Penchot. But even that is really complicated, right? And so um, both Muir and Penchot share some basic assumptions. They both want, for example, the government to manage vast acreages of wild nature. Now, they may want the government to do different things with that, right? And they famously split over whether Hetch Hetchy, the valley next to Yosemite, should be turned into a municipal reservoir for the city of San Francisco in the early 20th century or whether it should remain a beautiful valley, right? You know, Muir, of course, wants the latter, Pinchot the former. Pinchot wins that battle. Yes, he does. But they, you know, but they have a lot in common. They also have a shared sense of history that I try to document that we were talking about earlier. They think that the United States is in a different phase of its historical development, precisely because there are so many people and we have so many machines and we have this, you know, powerful, voracious industrial economy. So I don't think it makes to me and it doesn't make sense to think of them as people talking to one another across an ideological gulf. Um, I think they have much more in common um, in terms of how they view the world and how they view the connections between human beings and non-human nature than they do that separates them. But so that's kind of one axis is right in my mind is the material versus romantic end of conservation. The other axis, I think, is the question of landscapes or the question of location. What is the proper field of conservation? And I think there are some people that really had their focus relentlessly on the countryside, right? A supposedly more natural place, less altered by humanity seemingly than cities or suburbs. Um, but there are other people like Horace McFarland, uh, who we mentioned earlier, who are very interested in cities and in the um, ability of urbanites to have direct access to nature. And there's also a kind of, there's a middle to that spectrum as well, right? So I try to talk a lot about the kind of suburban landscapes and the discussion about what people should be planning in their yards, what aesthetic effect they should be um, aiming at, right? With a lot of people talking about how they should be aim using native plants and trying to replicate the kind of aesthetic sensibility of the nature of their region. And so this is, you know, particularly important in the Midwest where you have this, you know, set of champions of the kind of aesthetics of the prairie that we often associate with the world of architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright and others, but which is also very important in questions of environmental management. Um, and then finally, I think another kind of axis on which you could group conservationists would be about how sort of democratic or authoritarian they were, right? How much confidence they placed in, um, they wanted to, how much power they wanted to place in the hands of bureaucrats, how much complete control they wanted to give over to scientific expertise versus how much they thought that ordinary people 
um, you know, ought to have a direct voice in the management of natural resources or that ordinary people, in fact, um, knew things through their own experiences about the way the non-human world worked, you know, even if they hadn't been to the Yale School of Forestry. So at the end of the book, you know, I, I'm talking about this really interesting guy to me, Stuart Edward White, right, who yeah. warns about the dangers of uh, the kind of extreme fire control measures that people like both Muir and Pinchot actually wanted the government to take. And he says, you know, look, we we shouldn't try to manage these places too tightly. You know, there are things we don't know. And there are things that the scientists, you know, maybe they think they know more than they should. Maybe they should listen to people like me or even, you know, maybe they should listen to Indians, right, who don't have formal scientific knowledge, but um, who know a lot about the way the natural world works. So, yeah, those are I kind of think of it as being three axes, right, the material versus the romantic, the kind of spectrum of urban spaces versus wild rural nature and the question of kind of, you know, more democratic or populist or more kind of technocratic or even in some cases outright authoritarian. So do you view this as one of the main contributions of of your book? I mean, you're offering kind of like a, a synthetic narrative of the conservation movement, right, which is useful for all kinds of reasons. But um, is this one of the points you're, you're hoping that will will land harder with a lot of people, the diversity? It really is. Right. So I want, the, you know, when people make an assertion, oh, conservationists believed in eugenics and white supremacy, for example, I want that to be an untenable assertion. Now, I want them to say some conservationists or even better, a small group of conservationists around, circled around figures like uh, like Madison Grant believed in this. There are things that they held in common. There are generalizations we can make about the movement, but I want to muddy the waters a bit. That's what all good best all good history does, right? We're just muddying the waters and making a mess of things. Yeah, some things you want to make simpler and give people a kind of uh, straightforward handle and explanation, I think, and other things you want to say no. Like, it's not so simple. It's more complicated. And so, you know, I'm trying to do both on different questions. Well, I wanted to get here later, but maybe we should jump in right now. Um, one of the, I think one of the values of having messy, complicated history is the fact that we live in a messy, complicated mm-hmm. present, right? Um, yes. And there are a – I mean, so if you describe these three axes, how – I don't want you to – or maybe I do want you to get on a contemporary political soapbox. I don't know. We'll see where you take this. But oh, yeah, um, <laughs> that's very hard for me to do, Brendan. <laughs> so let's say we use these three axes, right, as a way to understand the conservation movement, how it evolved, how the later kind of environmentalist movement mm-hmm. evolved. How, how can we apply this more complicated understanding to the, the very messy contemporary a discourse about public lands or wilderness or uh, resource management, all these things. I, how can this inform us today? Yeah, so I think I see a couple of ways, and I definitely wrote this with contemporary environmental politics and contemporary environmental problems uh, in mind. And I'm a big proponent in, of thinking of the conservation history and the tradition of American conservation as a living tradition, right, as one that speaks to the present and is one that we can learn from, not learn from necessarily in the sort of simple and straightforward kind of hagiographic way of the first generation of environmental history, which was more like, you know, this is the lives of the saints, right? We're going to study Gifford Pinchot and John Muir and others, and we're going to go out and be little mirrors and Pinchots, although I think they're compelling figures because they spoke to um 
pressing environmental and especially in the case of Pinchot, social questions that are still very much with us, right? So it's not just, oh, you know, let's go back to the glory days of the 1890s and we can solve we can solve all of our problems. Uh, I do think the extent to which conservation was bound up in a wider movement to sort of domesticate and humanize capitalism, that movement being progressivism, is very instructive to contemporary environmental politics today. Right. So it is very diff- it's impossible for me to see how you effectively address or minimize the potentially catastrophic result of global climate change, for example, without somehow taming capitalism as a whole, and particularly without somehow limiting the extraordinary influence of private and corporate wealth on the American political system. Um, You know, the one requires the other as a as a prerequisite. And I think in this way, the progressives give us something of a roadmap, right? They made a sustained and successful, in many ways, case of the dangers of unregulated laissez-faire capitalism. But I also want this, you know, getting back to the theme of complexity, I also think that any self-conscious political tradition should learn from its own mistakes. And I think that is true in general of American democracy, of Christianity, uh, and I think it's true of conservation. And so I try to also write in the dark chapters of conservation. And I think that um, on questions of racial justice, uh, conservation had a terrible record, or to be more precise about it, white conservationists had a terrible record and that especially in the countryside and especially in Indian country, conservation was incredibly authoritarian, was a part of a colonial project of stripping Indian lands and, you know, handing them over to uh, the white populace of the United States and absorbing their resources into a dynamic um, capitalist economy. You know, these stories may be now better known to Western historians, right, than some of the other stories in the book, but this is, you know, Indian removal from virtually all national parks, right? Um, uh, This is the attack on Indian hunting, gathering, fishing, and other subsistence practices, precisely to try to force them into wage labor arrangements to make it difficult to um, perpetuate their cultures, which were also under attack, you know, uh, by the federal government uh, in an effort to, um, you know, in an effort to destroy those cultures and to uh, forcibly uh, assimilate Indians into the population as a whole. Uh, so um, there's a checkered of, history. Yeah, yeah, checkered history. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. What are what are some of the other kind of um, because my I think uh, general Listeners who may, you know, not have been reading a lot of environmental history, even what you just said is probably news to many of them. That when you when you created, you know, Grand Canyon or Yosemite or Yellowstone, there were native peoples living there, and there were also non-native peoples mm-hmm. living there, right, right? Whose kind of subsistence uh, livelihoods were were criminalized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other? Because I think this is again instructive for today as people debate. Yeah, you know, especially things about public lands, national monuments, right? With mm-hmm. uh, Trump's recent uh, rescinding of Bears Ears, or, or, or augmenting of it, I guess. Right. Um, there are always, or you can even go back again to, you know, what you briefly mentioned about fire suppression and fire regimes. Mm-hmm. Like there's for every environmental uh, or every decision we make for environmental policy, 
there are unintended consequences. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of the other perhaps dark ch- chapters that you share in the book, but also just um, unintended things that might serve as uh, cautionary a cautionary tale, tale right, yeah. for, for what we do today? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess right off the top of my head, I'd point to three things, right? So um, a number of conservationists are eugenicists in a fairly terrifying way, right? I mean, the... A number of progressives Yes, are, absolutely. Right? That's, that, that's absolutely correct, right? And so um, they saw the kind of conservation of whiteness or of a certain supposed racial supremacy to be a natural sort of corollary of the conservation of nature. And it's especially the kind of Redwoods crowd that's big on this. Can you give us kind of a, the two-sentence overview of eugenics? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think eugenics is the idea that you can, you can and should manage human heredity and reproduction so as to uh, preserve or I guess I could say conserve um, and even improve the human stock. And I think it's it, we appropriately understand this now, I think, through the horrors of Nazi Germany. Um, hereditary ideas are more complicated in the early 20th century in the United States and elsewhere. And so you see um, some people stressing the role of environment over heredity, right? And in that sense, they're talking about social conditions and its impact on just the well-being of human beings across the generation. So I talk a lot about this Los Angeles figure, the Reverend Dana Bartlett, in that regard. And you even have um, black figures like W.B. Du Bois who use a kind of hereditarian, um, hereditarian language. So it's a little bit more complicated than than we might think. Um, but it's definitely a strain in conservation. And there are, you know white nationalists today who are, you know, they really love nature and they don't want it being, as they would put it, defiled, including by, you know, people who they think are, you know, the children of a lesser God and not as not as worthy of them. And I think, you know, anyone who has a sense of human equality and a, and an awareness of, you know, the awful things that have happened in our history and the history of other places in the name of racial superiority, uh, you know, should find this to be an incredibly sobering um, strain of conservation. So there's the eugenic strain. That's one strain. I would say another strain is a more general sort of elitism that r- results in kind of the preservation of especially wild nature just for an elite few for the people who do the can afford to get there economy and yeah exactly can get on a plane or drive in an suv and go to some beautiful place um and again that's not all conservationists but it's a big strain it's a much bigger strain than the eugenicists i think and so in that sense you know it's an even more cautionary tale that seems to be one that maybe most directly speaks to present tensions right between rural westerners Mm -hmm. and you know, I think as you already mentioned, you know, this idea of outsiders coming in and telling yeah, that's right. how they're how an outside power, the federal government, mm-hmm. is going to manage the land. There's true. kind of that that elitism thing. Yeah, and and just you know, sort of urbanites too, right? So yeah. you know, to what extent do environmentalists who like you know wild nature pay attention to the Flint to the situation that you can't drink the public water in Flint or you'll get lead poisoning? Well, if you're not paying attention to that. I think you've got to ask yourself, you know, whose well-being are you concerned with and whose well-being are you not? And then I think that so there's the eugenic strain. There's the kind of general strain of elitism. And I think there's the, you know, what I would call the kind of hubris or mastery strain. Right. So people like Pinchot, I think they think that they are so smart. Right. They're the most highly educated 
powerful members of an unprecedentedly wealthy, powerful society. And I think that they think they really understand how nature works and they understand how to control it for the benefit of all. And so they look, I mean, I think they believe things that are just hard for us to take seriously today, but were sincerely and passionately believed in by humane, sensitive, and extremely intelligent and well-educated people. So they look at how destructive forest fires could be, right? The loss of lives, in some cases, sweeping away entire towns, um, the incredible loss of um, the economic value of the wood products. And they think, we're just not going to have fires anymore, right? We're going to outlaw fires, right? And Pinchot goes so far as to say the first duty of man is to control the earth upon which he lives. And they take a similar attitude towards predators, right? And this is, you know, kind of famously. And so they decide we are going to eliminate predators. So at one point, I think the head of the U.S. Biological Survey says that large predators have no place in a highly advanced society such as our own. I mean, it almost sounds genocidal, right? I think to contemporaries, it just sounds maniacal, right? It's like deranged. But they sincerely thought that. And so and it seems like today, generally, it seems like that's really bad science. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think. But, but you're, but you're saying the smartest minds in the room, they, they didn't just, they didn't just hate big animals. Like they felt they had good scientific ground upon which to build these ideas of fire suppression. Or exactly. Yeah. Predator, predator yeah. control. Yeah. The problem is not that they were bad scientists. The problem was that that was what science at that point had concluded. And again, I show again, as we established earlier, Conservation is complicated. I show from the beginning dissenting voices, people saying, ah, don't be so sure we know everything. And you start to hear those voices, you know, more and more, more and more loudly. But I do think that latter point is maybe the biggest way in which kind of contemporary environmentally sensitive people, you know, who would call themselves environmentalists have really actually parted from the older tradition of conservation. But so you're saying that today, we don't know at all. Like the, the hubris is still a problem. No, I no. I, th- I, think I thought modern science has all the answers. Um, I, but I think people have a much more modest sense of our ability to control and manipulate natural landscapes, and that they're much more inclined to have the de facto sense, the de facto posture be to sort of first do no harm, right? Mm-hmm. Let nature alone. So even. You know, last week at the Western History Association, there was a wonderful paper on um, the expansion of uh, salt cedar, right, which is from Eurasia along Western waterways. And um, Marsha Weisiger, the author, talked about how uh, the government has introduced, um, I believe it's a caterpillar that eats the salt cedar. And when she said that, the whole audience, like half of us laughed and half of us groaned, right? There was just a sense, oh, my God you know, that's not going to work out or that's like really rolling the dice, right? That's like playing Russian roulette. And I think that moment to me really marked a fundamental difference between now and a century ago. I think if the kind of equivalent of environmentally aware historians had been around in 1910 and having that conversation, they would have been like, okay, good. We're going to figure out how to control this thing, right? We can, you know, we have a a kind of mastery of knowledge and we can, we can take care of that problem. And I think we're more skeptical today, you know, probably, uh, probably healthily, right? I think that's, you know, maybe something, maybe something that we've learned. Uh, well, let's, let's hope so. Um, you, you mentioned that, um, 
we often like to simplify things into really simple answers, but there's always this more complex story mm-hmm. or complex set of, say, sci- scientific understanding of where things might go. And, and you're saying that today we are more skeptical, mm-hmm. that we, we do understand that, oh, there are limitations to what we can do. We need to be more smart about this. But in contemporary political discourse, it is always a simple story with black and white options. Mm-hmm. I mean, so maybe environmental historians are all on board with um, <laughs> with checking our hubris and understanding, and, and I think a lot of environmental scientists as well. I have lots of plant sure. wildlife scientists yeah, yeah. here on campus that yeah. come to my classes and talk, and we're all on board with it. How do we get that out to the general public and, and convince them that, that this is something we need to think critically about as we then need to make really nuanced, careful decisions as a, you know, as a broader society? Yeah, I'm not sure I have such a good answer to that. I mean, some of this I feel like is a question of what audience you're talking to, right? I do think there are some relatively straightforward, if not necessarily simple truths that need to be driven home to people who don't recognize them or don't want to recognize them. So I'm not all invested in complicating everything. So, for example, it tremendously bothers me, the denial of climate change in American public discourse, and frankly, particularly by the Republican Party, is just tremendously disturbs me. And I don't understand why we have that in this country when even the conservative parties of other countries don't feel obligated to deny the overwhelming scientific consensus that there is indeed a connection between CO2 levels and global temperatures, and that therefore industrialization has and is driving up global temperatures. Um, I don't understand that. And so to a group of people who is not on board with that, I might want to offer them the simple truth, right, and stark warnings of what happened when you just pretend these things don't happen. To a different audience, though, especially to people who start off like me, somewhat aware of environmental questions and having sharing the basic kind of conservation a sense that you know we need to be self-conscious about how we how humanity and the non-human world interact with one another and we need to put restrictions on our own activities including you know the private sector to them i want to say you know uh, yes i agree but like let's look at how that has worked out historically and let's see some of the mistakes that people like us made generations in the past so that we can avoid them and I think particularly the kind of authoritarian, coercive side of conservation, the ways in which conservation in many cases created social injustice, that's something that I want people who teach the kind of classes that we do and go to the kind of conferences that we do and read the kind of books that we do to be aware of and, and to pass on their students. So, you know, I'm giving you kind of a long answer to your question, but I, um, I think about this as kind of different audiences, right? And there's some audiences that need a greater sense of complexity and could gain that from environmental history. And there are other audiences who need to be told, actually, it's not that complicated. Let me ask about maybe one uh, third audience. A couple years ago, I got roped into an environmental studies reading group with some local environmentalists and historians and environmental literature and humanities and scientists. This really great group. They're all super engaged in thinking about the environment. Yeah, um, I feel like this imposter, but I love reading these books and talking with them. Um, And one thing that always comes up after we talk about the book, you know, we always start talking about, you know, the woes of modern day politics. And there's this continual frustration about the politicization of environmental concepts like you were saying like about climate change has become a politicized topic and we're always lamenting that 
And so I would ask how your book would apply to them, because your book also shows that it has always been a politicized exactly. topic. So, so, so what could this group of people learn from your book? So, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that I do think it's a mistake to sort of yearn for the days when there weren't arguments over the politics of environmental protection and environmental knowledge because those days never existed, right? Um, or to the extent that people thought they did, it was because this kind of authoritarian scientific regime said, you know, we can't have political arguments about this because there's only one truth and we actually have it, right? Because we're the, you know, we're the good scientists. I think as an alternative, what I would suggest is that understanding the diversity of American environmental politics in the past, right? So the internal complexity and heterogeneity of conservation might make it easier for people to feel like they could change their specific ideas or stances on specific policy proposals related to the environment and not be giving up a sense of who they are, of their identity, of their loyalty, of their affiliation. To me, that's what has become the most toxic about American politics. It's not that it's politicized or divided. I think that's actually uh, reflects what you would expect from a democratic political system in a very large and internally heterogeneous country. It's that these fights so often switch from being about a specific policy to being about who you are and, you know, who your people are, right? Who your loyalty uh, lies with. So, so compromise is a, uh, an existential betrayal. A betrayal. Right? Yeah, betrayal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or that, you know, changing your own view would be a, you know, sort of betrayal of yourself and, um, and your allies. So, you know, one of the things I was very interested in when I was researching the kind of rural Western opposition to conservation and to people like Pinchot, on the one hand, a lot of them thought, you know, this is who we are. We're Westerners. We're ranchers. And, you know, these jerks like Gifford Pinchot want to be our czar, right? They actually called him the czar of Wonderland, which I thought was wonderful. Wow. Um, but on the other hand, there were a lot of the same people from the same places in the same occupation. So Western ranchers and farmers who were like, no, you know, overgrazing, overharvesting, um, destructive, poor timber harvesting practices actually cause real problems and they're not good for us. And so, sure, they weren't the same as a John Muir, right, in terms of what they wanted out of environmental policy or, you know, how they viewed nature. But they saw a place for themselves in these big ideas of conservation that you needed to use scientific expertise and the power of the state and a kind of cultural awareness to be smarter about how you use nature for your own sake, if for no other if for no other reason. So I guess uh, to the extent that, you know, I have an answer to this question, um, it lies in that. Right. Like this is a big tent. There are lots of different people and different beliefs who with different beliefs who can find a place for themselves there. There's no one way you have to be. There's no, there's not just one way to be a conservationist or an environmentalist. Well, that seems like a hopeful note to end on maybe um, instead of ending on some dark, uh, <laughs> sour night. Um, uh, <laughs> I like the idea of this. And I think that, you know, to me, uh, hope actually is one of the big takeaways I get from having worked for more than a decade on this book. Like, People are very smart. They're um, they're very creative. 
when we apply ourselves to these questions, um, we can come up with, you know, compelling and practical solutions. And I think that was true a century ago. And I, um, I believe it's true today as well. I sure hope so. Um, I hope the book is widely read by people interested in the environment, interested in the progressive movement, uh, interested in all kinds of things. Uh, thanks for writing it. And, and thanks for joining us for, for some time on the podcast, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Brendan. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else of the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Red Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.